This is Life and Books and Everything, hosted by Kevin DeYoung, Justin Taylor, and Colin Hansen. And salutations. It is good to have you with us after taking uh, a week off over the holiday weekend. We are back here. I am Kevin DeYoung, joined as always with my good friends Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen. Welcome back, gentlemen. Good to have you with us. And we are recording this on Monday, June 1st. And uh, we like to have a wide range of topics that we discuss here from the sublime to the borderline ridiculous at times, but always at some point uh, resulting in some discussion of books, hence the name life and books and everything. And while we really don't want this to be a current events podcast, at times there are events going on that uh, we, we would really be remiss if we didn't say something about. And so Certainly, we want to say something, and maybe this will lead into a discussion of some books, but we want to spend some time reflecting on the death of George Floyd. Uh, and we all agree that it is a evil, injustice. Uh, you, 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 you can hardly exaggerate the senseless injustice of it. And uh, I certainly don't want to say there's there's any good in that. That's not the right word. But perhaps something to be thankful for is that uh, it, it does seem like, at least on in this occasion, almost everyone in the country agrees that to put your knee on the neck of a man who is obviously not resisting arrest there and is... Uh, just casually with your hands in your pocket, putting your knee there for eight, nearly nine minutes while he cries out for breath and bystanders around urge you to stop. And you see he's then lying motionless. Uh, at least I think we can all agree that that's wrong, that that's unjust, and that the officer has rightly been arrested and charged. And we will pray for justice in the ensuing weeks and however long that process lasts. So uh, there's a lot of things we could say, and we want to start by making that clear and by expressing empathy, sympathy. I know those are two different things, and I forget which one's supposed to be good or bad, but uh, at least trying to express rightfully, you know, we always have to guard our own hearts in these discussions that we're, we're not you know, looking to virtue signal and trying to be more outraged than thou. But I think quite genuinely there is a place uh, when it's honestly felt and experienced to express solidarity, not only with African-American brothers and sisters in Christ, but with fellow human beings and image bearers in this loss of life. And I do think there, and then I'll, I'll let you guys just, uh, give some an initial opening thoughts, but I do think there is a word here for, you know, what, what we're three 30 something, 40 something uh, white men who are talking about this. And so we've had different experiences and we don't want to pretend to have experiences that we haven't. I do think there is a place and perhaps one thing that we could say to others like us without wanting to pretend we have any expertise, is to simply say uh, the, the, the anger, the, the pain, that the, I'm sick and tired of being tired, all of that comes from a very real historical place for African-Americans. And, you know, it, it, it's a shame that we live in a time where, you know, lots of people can uh, manufacture hurts and offenses, and yet with the history of slavery and Jim Crow, it's certainly not one of them. This, this, this doesn't come from nowhere is what I'm saying. And I think that's really important for, for me, just put myself in the middle for me or someone like me to remember that and to understand when it inevitably won't land on uh, us perhaps in, in the same way. 
And when people are saying, do you see it, pastor? Will you pray about it? Is this going to show up? Does this even land on you in any meaningful way? Uh, yes, there's a danger of just getting onto Twitter to say something immediately to prove your moral bona fides, but there's also a very real place to want to recognize and acknowledge Yeah, we, we do see it and it is wrong. And uh, at least it's a, it's not an ending place, but it's a starting place to state those things. Justin and Colin, I'll have some more specific questions in a moment, maybe some categories to think of, but just on a kind of emotional, visceral level, what have you been thinking, feeling over the last week? Justin? Yeah, it's uh, not been an easy week, and it's uh, painful at so many different levels, and there's so many different issues involved. Um, it, it shouldn't require a video for us to feel uh, pain and to feel it viscerally. Uh, we read about things in history textbooks. Of course, there was no video. I mean, maybe uh, we'll see a, a black and white photograph. But the fact is that we did have a video, and there were were people pleading uh, for a different outcome, seeing what was going on. Uh, so there's something powerful about seeing it uh, in living color and um, to literally watch a man die. Uh, it's, it is painful. Uh, my wife and I, when we first moved to Minneapolis, it was a week after we were married in summer of 1998. I moved into a, a little fourplex uh, apartment in Powderhorn Park, and that's about five blocks from where Mr. Floyd died. So um, to think about a hometown in some sense and to uh, see the aftermath, to see the pain, um, I, I don't want to... Um, yeah, any of those things, Kevin, that you were saying that, you know, I'm, I have some deep connection there, but I think it's the humanity, the, the civil rights uh, poster board that we see of, of the African American men standing there with uh, placards that say, I am a man. Um, before George Floyd was a black man, he's just, he's a man created in the image of God. And to see him killed in that way is, uh, it takes your breath away. It uh, is deeply painful. And as the, the father of a, a African-American teenage boy, um, it hits home in a, a special way there as well. Yeah. Thanks for that. Colin? I mean, uh, we all have connections in different ways, specifically to, to Minneapolis, a place where I grew up visiting often and visiting my family in the area. And I think one of the first things that hit me was, oh no, not again in Minneapolis after Philando Castile. And you could see see how this was going to go. Um, a unique confluence of factors that make this crime particularly heinous and particularly painful. I think the as you guys have already expressed, the the seeing it and, and watching it and watching it bear out just as a level of which how could you do that. And I think, um, you know, this isn't new for us, unfortunately. It's not the first time this has happened. It's not the second time. It's not the third time. It's not the fourth time. And we also know that it's not a, it's not a historical anomaly, but the, um, what I keep coming back to again and again and again is that I was raised in a, in a way to understand the United States to be a basically good and just place and that authorities were, were basically on my side and um, were going to do right uh, by me. And I, if I followed the rules, everything would turn out okay. But as I've um, watched these videos over the years and moved to the South and listened uh, to other people's experiences, it, it, it's come to strike me that that's a, a particular narrative uh, that is not unique or exclusive necessarily to whites, but it's certainly not the dominant one that my African-American um, neighbors here in Birmingham, Alabama would think. And I remember a friend of mine years ago, a pastor, uh, he was talking about the the way that in a, in a majority black city like Birmingham, that uh, whites will kind of instinctively respond to the threat of African-Americans. And he said, isn't it interesting, speaking about the history of Birmingham, who's supposed to be afraid of whom here? 
because it's obviously a city where it's marked by the brutalization of white police officers toward African-Americans. And so when you have a situation, which we're kind of seeing now within the riots, where African-Americans have a historical and uh, unquestioned grievance there, and at the same time, then you have whites responding and other people of other ethnicities responding and other African-Americans responding with a fear of safety. You can see why it becomes such a struggle in this fallen world to be able to make any progress. And that's discouraging. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, I, I like to fancy myself an answer person that I have a way forward. But as I've often thought about the situation here locally and then nationally, it's like, um, Pretty much every reason you want to give for the problem is a problem somewhere. Um, you know, the, these things, uh, these happen in a moment that changes the world, but they don't happen in a vacuum. Uh, there's a historical context of interpretation there. And just about everybody's interpretation at some level uh, is valid. But of course, just in terms of all the problems that befall race relations in America. But the fact of the matter is, we continue to see this afflicting African-Americans and the message is clear that it's horrible, that it needs to end and that it's not uncommon. And that's um, that I think needs to guide uh, whatever steps I hope we take from here. Colin, let me just ask on that last point. What do you, th- what do you think is not uncommon? You mean historically, you mean at present, you mean, um, being yeah. treated by police officers, uh, being killed because that that that's we'll get yeah. that a little bit, but that's at the heart of a lot of what divides us. Is right. this an anomaly or is this common? What what did you mean by that? Yeah, what I it's a it's a great question, Kevin. Um, and the message that I want to communicate here is the same message that I communicate whenever I have a chance to be able to teach on history and civil rights, and and it's that. Um, if you're African-American and whether you live in the South or live in one of those communities African-Americans migrated North into, there is a particular narrative related to the police. And that's contemporary in terms of interactions with police that, that you're always fearful of escalating. And just speaking, especially of the South, because that's where most of my reading is, um, there's simply no way to avoid the plain reality that in many cases, I'm not, I don't know if it's like most, just in many cases, the problem was the police. It's not like the police were a group of good guys who didn't step in. The police were in cases like, for example, the three civil rights workers who were killed in Mississippi. I mean, they, they were the clan. They were the problem. They, they were uh, complicit. And of course that includes, um, Bull Connor, most famously here in Birmingham. And so what I mean is that it's not uncommon in that if you're African-American, you don't trust the police, you have reasons to think that's an issue, even regardless of your experience, which I can't speak to, except for what I hear. You have a reason to think that historically in a way that I do not have reason to think about historically. Um, And that's what I mean there. So I just think it's important to understand that if even if we don't understand that context that 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 there's a different narrative that's inhabited by african americans and of course there's plenty of debate about data and examples and things like that and that's meaningful but it's just if you're if you're scared of the police and you're african american you have reasons uh so we'll, we'll come back to some of that in in a few moments let's Let's talk about this. I mean, we, we could talk for weeks and uh, maybe say a few helpful things and probably some unhelpful things, uh, because anytime you, you start talking about race, uh, it, it's difficult. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel the, you know, and I'm sure it's, it's, it's part wisdom and it's part just fearfulness, you know, we're going to say something wrong, whether it's too far to the right or to the left or missing some sensitivity. Uh, it, it's just, it's an extremely difficult thing 
to talk about. And that's for the, the three of us that have, you know, not had the, the experiences that all sorts of people have had. But let's just look at a couple, a few categories and thinking about what's happened over the last week and, um, you know, across the spectrum, whether you got an R by your name or a D by your name, you can find some examples of, of people acquitting themselves well and not well. And we do see how leadership matters. And we're trying to think in this podcast how to help Christians, how to help church leaders. And, uh, you know, people have said before, character is destiny. And I, I do think that's true. I mean, it's it's not that you can't have uh, bad people do some good things. I don't know if you watched the the Lance Armstrong documentary the last two weeks, but one of the themes through that was, you know, is Lance a, a good guy who did bad things or a bad guy who did good things? Because he did genuinely good things for the cancer community, and he sure seemed like a big jerk to everyone and lied. So uh, not saying that we're, we're all mixed, okay? We all have clay feet. But at some point, uh, you know, a crisis doesn't make us into heroic people. A crisis can reveal very ordinary people who do heroic things to, you know, tell a looter to, you know, get that brick out of your hand and all sorts of things. But we see in a crisis at some point, your character is going to be how you lead. And, and, and there, there's, there's nothing we'd like to think that our, whatever your favorite political philosophy is, that it ensures that those people are virtuous, but we just know from history. And in fact, you know, that's what our founders, you know, that's the whole, you know, emphasis in the Federalist Papers is we better have checks and balances, factions and factions and ambition, because we're not going to be governed by angels. We're going to be governed by men. But when God gives us good men, or in our case, good men and women to lead in political, religious, other sorts of spheres, we see people who are honest, humble, self-sacrificing, disciplined. And if we just pretend that we can set that aside in in looking at who our leaders should be, at some point, their character is going to be revealed. And uh, in that moment of crisis, they're not suddenly going to be transformed. And I think, you know, even if you're not an expert on these matters, and the three of us certainly aren't, I think if if you can get people of general honesty, integrity, discipline, sacrifice, character, convict, it's at least it's not a it's not a sufficient uh, cause for for change or healing, but it is a necessary one, and it's often in short supply. How, how have you guys just following your Twitter feed or the news, uh, Justin, how have you thought about what makes for good leadership in times like this? Yeah, I think the thing that happens when there is a crisis is two things, especially if you're in any position of leadership. Number one, you have to speak. I mean, to to not speak is an abdication of leadership. So you're required to say words, right? And secondly, they tend to be unscripted because it, by the very nature of it being a crisis. So when you look at a political leader, it's one thing for them to give the State of the Union, which is very uh, planned many months in advance, and it goes through this incredible vetting process. But it's quite another thing to, to put a politician up, let's say, at a press conference as the crisis is unfolding all around them. There's a limit to which that can be scripted and vetted. And so from a biblical worldview, it's hard not to think about the sort of things Jesus said when he you know, said the good person on the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of his heart, uh, the mouse speaks. So it is a revealer of character. Um, it is a revealer of the heart. The more that we speak, the more we are showing what uh, we are made of and what's inside of us. And this is perhaps a, a different topic for a different time, but it is disconcerting. I feel conscience bound to say it, that uh, evangelicals have seemed to have abandoned the character uh, criteria in terms of leadership. I, I don't think that's uh, a position or a mindset or a posture that will end well to say what really matters is policy and effectiveness and character uh, sort of take it or leave it. I think 
we're seeing in a crisis like this, that character really does matter and what you say matters. And that ultimately comes, I think, from the heart. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's true. I remember uh, someone saying back in the nineties when looking at character and, you know, evangelicals were talking more about it, that you know, what, what, what a person does privately is, is going to matter in what they do publicly. And if you're a cheat to people or you're uh, a philanderer that, you know, that says something about the way you interact with people. And we're not talking about, uh, you know, people who, who come to a point of deep contrition and repentance. You know, there's, there's King David and man after God's own heart. And we, we believe in second chances uh, rightly construed in, in forgiveness. But it is to say that you drop somebody into or a crisis arises around them and you are going to see and it's going to matter the sort of person and that that's we're not just talking politics but but in a church colin how have you thought about this and what's necessary from a christian perspective for leadership in uh pandemics and riots and um, all the mess that we have this year yeah i think um a couple things that stand out i i'm increasingly of the belief within the coronavirus um, pandemic that a lot of the reaction early on, which I'll just go on the record and think and, and say that my my belief is that it was an overreaction. I think the overreaction at the original outset of the pandemic owed a lot to the fact that at some level Americans didn't trust didn't trust our own leaders, and that the world at some level did not trust global leaders or at least also American leaders in that case. And I saw something really interesting this last week. Um, I feel like I've been watching like hate watching um, just in and out Bill Maher for like 20 years. Do you guys remember oh, yeah. the old show he used to do, you know, like, like at night, this was before the HBO days. And as a young Christian, I would watch him and just get so furious you would always have like an abstinence advocate on there and they'd always team up. And mm-hmm. um, anyway, so I just remember getting so upset. And so I've never, never enjoyed Bill Maher. I've never like found common cause with him, but there was something really interesting. I saw the other day as I was just flipping through channels, I saw him talking about the coronavirus and vitamin D. And he said, what we're seeing all over the place is that vitamin D, you know, has some major health benefits. So why is it that you don't see a major push for people to get outdoors. Why is it that we keep talking about lockdowns in I mean in the sense that it just isn't good for people in general, for their humanity, for their health, uh relationally, spiritually for them to be at home in front of their computers on social media looking at all this stuff and eating in unhealthy ways. And he said it's just very odd and then he said something interesting. He said um We all know, and this is coming from Bill Maher's perspective, he says, we all know that there's a problem with President Trump. He said, but the problem is not, it's not less than President Trump, but it's more. Where is the, why is there this massive leadership breakdown all over the place? And that's what's concerning to me. I think I've said it before here, but if not, one of the reasons I love studying history and I love reading about history is because you do see the way character and the character of leaders makes a difference. Uh, the way that it can shape history under God's providence in specific ways. And you can't just substitute any individual in and out and get the same results, at least on this side of that. And and I look now and I see, um, I mean, just at, at so many different levels, at the, at the police level, at the uh, health official level, at the national level, at the state level, um, I mean, I look from state to state and for my friends up north, by the way, up north from here means Tennessee. Right. Uh, so uh, my friends up north in Tennessee, I'm jealous. You have better leaders than I have in Alabama. 
Um, and just it makes a difference. Better football coaches, or no, no, not those leaders. Not I mean, leaders that even really if, matter. But even if Tennessee wants to claim that they have better football coaches, their football coach came from Alabama, and yeah, I think right. if we wanted him back, he'd come back someday anyway. So, uh, <laughs> uh, thanks, Jeremy Pruitt. Uh, good luck. So no, I just it's it makes a it makes a big difference, and I I just I see a massive breakdown when people do not trust their leaders. They turn on each other. I think that's what we're seeing right now. A, a, a good old word for us is magnanimity. And, uh, you know, a magnanimous person is someone who doesn't bear grudges, doesn't wallow in self-pity, does not demand penance from everyone, does not advertise suffering, does not stu- stoop to settle Every score, you know, someone who bears hardships uh, with fortitude and patience. And uh, those sorts of public leaders seem to be in short supply. And you look at history, and I think you know, I, I would say that the, the president who did the best with this was Abraham Lincoln, you know, with Mag- and that's why, you know, most people, and I know there's a whole scholarship side that, that thinks Lincoln was a terrible president and expanded federal powers. And so we, we're not going to turn this into a Lincoln podcast, but we uh, could do that though. We could like. another not time, ready. but, but most, most people would agree there's a magnanimity there in the way that he addressed both sides and was not, was it seemed genuinely seeking, uh, certainly the union, uh, but following that peace, I wonder maybe a transition here is to think we talked a lot on this podcast before about social media and, you know, one of the the positive things perhaps is, you know, I, I don't, I follow a few hundred people, but even on there, I see people to the pretty far to the right and pretty far to the left. So there is something perhaps good with seeing how a, a lot of different people are viewing these same actions in incredibly different ways but I think what can be so divisive and so harmful, and it, you know, two things come to mind. One is the say something. You know, Justin, you said if you have a public platform, there's, you know, there is some responsibility at some level. But so often it's you need to say it. You need to say it right now. You need to say it loudest. You need to say it first. If you don't, your silence speaks volumes. Get on now. And uh, I was going to tweet something on Saturday, but I thought. That's going to look ironically self-defeating if I tweet it. But I was going to say, pastors, you you ought to be spending more time crafting your pastoral prayer and what to say to your flock than crafting your social media statement. And I was really speaking to myself because I could find my own self thinking, what what am I going to say? And I think far more important is what I need to say to my my people and how I need to lead them in prayer and thinking about this. But social media can just twist what really matters. And then the other danger, there's many, is it is so easy to think that is reality. When especially Twitter, all sorts of studies have shown this, you know, it's it may be influencers, so-called, but it's a very small, what, 10% of people are on Twitter? I mean, it's a very small slice and it tends to be angry that's what it does and you can think that is reality now it's not i mean they're real people well some of them aren't they're bots but a lot of them are most of them are real people <laughs> tweeting things um so it's not disconnected from all reality and yet if you think that's what america is my twitter feed uh, that that is going to be depressing and it's going to produce in us a lot of anger and fear and uh, you know i just find for my own sanity you know i want to follow the news and so often i do it through but i i need to i need to step away i need to step out and i i I don't know how some of our friends get in there and mix it up and they may have a different calling and i can't you know judge their motives on that it may do some good but for me i know it becomes very unhealthy very quickly Perhaps one helpful thing we could do for just a few minutes is to talk about some books and some books that may help us uh, try to have some better understanding of what do you want to call it? Uh, 
interactions with police or racial reconciliation. And there's a lot of, of books here. So I'm not, I'm not asking for your top 10 books about the civil rights era, though maybe that's one that you think is helpful, or books on the, the broad state of race in America, but perhaps just thinking about the issue of policing in African-American communities and what we've seen with George Floyd and now what we see with protests and, and riots, which are two different things. And it seems like maybe not even the same people doing those. So books. And here's a couple that come to mind for me. One, and this was, I wrote about this on my on my blog a few years ago, and it was a book recommended by Ed Copeland, who's uh, a friend of mine and probably of yours too, an uh, African-American pastor in Rockford, Illinois. I serve on the board of TGC with him, and he's a friend, and I've learned a lot from from him on these issues. And he he invited me several years ago to to read, it's called Don't Shoot, and it is by a uh, Kennedy, what's it, David Kennedy. And he's white, and he's a self-described liberal. Uh, it's not a Christian book, but he writes about race relations and the police. And he has one particular about 15-page section, which is very powerful. And just a, a few lines from it. He says, the real issue was the police thought the community was completely corrupt from top to bottom. The real issue was the community thought the police were predators deliberately doing them horrendous harm. The real issue was the way the relationship between the police and the community was being poisoned by toxic racial narratives. Here things get real ugly. And Ed recommended this book to me. And Ed actually is is mentioned in the book as one of the people who's who's helped to try to bridge some of these gaps between the community and law enforcement. And what I found helpful in the book is, you know, he's not, David Kennedy, it's coming from someone who has an experience with both communities over a long time. And he's really trying to give both communities, I think the benefit of the doubt to say, um, I've not encountered racist police officers. I've uh, been in these communities. They really do want safe communities. And yet there are these narratives which make things so difficult for, for, for anyone to come to some common ground. And so I found that very helpful, uh, you know, on listening to the police and their perspective, listening to these communities and their perspective, and then what role... It's certainly racialized, but it's a more complicated picture than simply there's racism and there's good guys and there's bad guys. So that was uh, a very helpful book for me. You can Google it. I wrote an article on my blog across the race divide about that about four years ago. And uh, interestingly, another book that's you know not a Christian book, but just for maybe information for some people. I, I didn't grow up around police officers. I grew up around mostly white people, but I probably grew up around more African-Americans than, than police officers. It's just a very small number for both. And so I'm you know, new to even understanding the world of law enforcement. And now I have probably a dozen law enforcement officers in my church. But I read back when Ferguson happened, this book by Lee Laughlin called Police Procedure and Investigation, A Guide for Writers. It's an interesting book for people who are trying to write crime stories about how policing actually works. And for somebody who's a, a novice like me, just to read through it and talk about typical policing procedures was just eye-opening. Again, it's not a book. It's not trying to take any sides on any of these particular issues, but I found those two helpful. And, and there's other ones, but I'll let you guys jump in. Colin? Yeah, a few books, Kevin, come to mind. Um, then, and from a variety of different perspectives related to that issue of policing and minorities. Uh, one of them is that overall, I would just commend for a lot of people the book Factfulness by Hans Rosling. And so it's a pretty popular book. Bill Gates had picked up on it. A number of people liked it. And you wonder, how is that exactly connected to this issue? Well, Kevin, you and I and, and Justin, we've all talked quite a bit online and offline about like, how people would size up the state 
of racism today. How serious is this? How much progress have we been made? I think Rosling gives people a category to be able to say things can be better and not good. And I think that'll help people to be able to have better conversations with each other to say, somebody over here might be saying, but hey, don't you see how things are better? And somebody else can respond and say, yeah, but they're still not good. And they can both be correct. And so I think that mentality would help a lot of people. Another book, a new book, kind of a reissued book came out last year called Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love by Thomas Terrence. This is a Christian book about, there's no other way to say he was one of the most notorious white supremacist terrorists of the South in the civil rights era and went on to become uh, president of, I think, the C.S. Lewis Institute and a born-again Christian. And one of the things that's remarkable about this book is I'm so grateful that the Lord preserved Terrence's life through what he went you know, through, what he had done. Um, and I mean, again, we're talking about a, a an actual terrorist here. I mean, assassination attempts, prison breaks, all kinds of different stuff. But I think it's kind of interesting in this context because it makes you think. How in the world, I mean, would they ever have allowed a man who had done things like this in Mississippi who was black to ever survive any of this? You know, you'll often hear about even how horrible criminals are treated differently if they're white or they're black. Um, That's just a subtext within Terrence's book. But more than anything else, it's a story of God's transforming grace in his life. Last one I'd mention just briefly is um, one that I recommend most commonly called Carry Me Home by Diane McWhorter. It's about the civil rights struggle of Birmingham in 1963, won the Pulitzer Prize. One of the reasons I recommend this one so often, um, and I don't know how you guys feel about this exactly, but I'm I'm gonna go down, I'm gonna go down swinging on the premise that a re one major reason we don't we have so many problems here is because people don't know. They they either choose not to know out of deliberate ignorance, or they've never been taught, or They've been taught bad history or something, but if if somebody were trying to understand my own city's problems, then they wouldn't just go back and pick out 1963. They would go back to 1923, and they would look at the at the relations between the police and uh, labor unions in Birmingham. And so, I mean, that's I'm just I'm going to stick to the premise that one reason a lot of people don't see eye to eye is because they just don't know. And so my my inclination as a teacher who loves to to read this stuff and loves to talk about it is that I'm just going to assume that when we do talk about it, that people do change. I know that's naive. It doesn't always happen that way. But I'm going to assume that if you get the right hand, right books in the right hands of people, that the Lord uses that means to change lives. I've seen it happen, my own life and another's. Justin. So a few books that come to mind from my end, uh, not so much along the policing route, but just more generally about race things that I've found helpful over the years. Um, I know Divided by Faith is kind of the 101 level Bible for a lot of people on uh, these sort of issues. I wasn't as big a fan of that book, but uh, George Yancey, who's a black sociologist uh, beyond racial gridlock, I think is helpful in a lot of ways, especially if you think color blindness is the the key to moving forward. Um, He's just a very thoughtful, clear writer. Uh, From a fiction standpoint, Meals from Mars, TGC highlighted that a few years ago, did a nice review. The author's name, I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name, something like Ben Ben Shaka. Shaka. He's a member of my my church. All right. Uh, A fictional narrative and uh, a young black man who gets into trouble uh, I think it's a great entry-level book just on empathizing and trying to look at things from different people's points of view. All right, let me wrap up this podcast with a it, a few miscellaneous thoughts on everything that's going on right now. And just to let everyone know, we were having all sorts of technological glitches in recording this podcast and so things uh may felt a little patchy at times and uh unfortunately when justin was talking things started going haywire so you may have less justin taylor than we would all like and in fact we couldn't quite finish the whole discussion that we wanted to have and so i'm flying solo now for 
these last few minutes, but given the state of everything going on in our world and in our country, uh, we didn't want to end it abruptly. So let me just try to offer maybe uh, a, a smattering of thoughts. I've been thinking a lot about what's what's, what's making this so difficult, and, and the this in that statement refers to racial issues in this country, uh, making sense of what's happened in the last week, in the last five years, in the last generation. But in particular, thinking about this last week as we are now on night seven of, I mean, just mind-boggling destruction in some of our cities. And so what, 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 how did we get here? What, what is going on? I don't know the answer to that, but here's just some thoughts. Uh, what, what's making it worse? Maybe that's the way to say it. What is making this worse? Number one, there's a tremendous amount of, I'll just call it my side-ism uh, that happens on, on, on both sides, on all sides, that every time we have, I mean, it's coronavirus, it's the economy, it's politics, and now it's literal life and death. And though everyone, virtually everyone, can agree that the death of George Floyd was was a murder and it was an injustice, after that everything becomes a talking point for one side or the other. And uh, I saw uh, Philip Holmes, very thoughtful, and uh, appreciate what he says. He uh, he, he pointed out that something, I'm summarizing now, something you know, perverse starts to happen in, in our hearts that you, you root for the other team to, to do something evil. And he was saying, you know, if you find in your heart that you want the officer to have, have turned out to be the worst possible you know, white supremacist. You find that in your heart. You want that to be true, or you find in your heart you want it to that George Floyd was was on drugs and he had a police record and he was. You find that in your heart, and and the human heart wants to find those sort of because then it can feel like, okay, our 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 side doesn't have egg on its face, and I mean this has been happening for a long time. It's just been. Uh, made worse in the last number of years that you know there's there's certain sides and uh you know you you so you want to show that the real people doing all the bad stuff are uh the anti-fascists or it's the white supremacists and yeah those things do do matter but all we're trying to do is prove that your side is the one that makes everything wrong and that's not going to help so that that's one thing just the constant my side ism and so we just feel like we're just we're wearing these jerseys whatever they even represent anymore and we're just trying to find a way that our side whatever that is our side are the ones being victimized our side are the ones who are being put out your side uh, is the one that's wrong uh, second obvious reason why this is so hard is just personal history. I mean, anytime you talk about race, and, and I'm not going to pretend to certainly ha- have that history or, or, or understand that history, except I, I want to listen and I want to understand and I want to act appropriately based on what I hear and, and understand. I know that there comes a point when uh, African-American friends and neighbors say, okay, you know, we want you to listen and we want you to sympathize and then we want you to be with us. So th- there's a personal history to it that is, uh, you, know, you, you can't do away with and you wouldn't, you know, in some sense, you don't want to do away with it. You want to do away with you know, injustice. And and then with that, we have to, you know, there's a tremendous amount of guilt. There's guilt that, that white people feel. And we have to be honest with that. And does that mean that every, you know, white person who is really adamant about uh, the cause of justice is doing it to assuage white guilt? Well, no, of course, we're not impugning people's motives, but it does mean there there's a personal side to it, whether you are black or whether you are white, that we bring to it these intense uh, emotions 
uh, and experiences and in some sense trying to prove who we are or who we aren't. And so it, it's it's never never just a, you know a dispassionate intellectual discussion about facts. We're always interpreting them. So it's it's intensely personal. Um, you know, third, we're we're in this lockdown, and you know we'll we'll see in two weeks, I guess, whether the lockdown how necessary it was, or whether all these crowds are super spreaders, or whether we were locked down inside and didn't really need to be. But certainly that's something. You, you have all this stress. You have all this economic upheaval. And you're not supposed to go anywhere, do anything. And now the weather's nice and it's summer and you pent up. And certainly that's something. Uh, four, we are in the fog of war. Now, I don't, I don't use war. Hopefully this doesn't escalate any further, but it, it's really scary. But I just use that as an expression, and Justin has said that a number of times, that in the fog of war, you get all sorts of misinformation, and it may be uh, intentional misinformation, but oftentimes it's just things are happening quickly. You don't know. Uh, it's outsiders. It's it's people from Minnesota. Well, what's the truth there? What's going on? What what are the reports happening? You just There's just a big fog, and so we're bound to want to believe what our narrative already says is taking place, and there's so much information we just don't know. Uh, a fifth thing, this is a really, this is a scary time. I know it's, uh, I was talking to an African-American friend that said, I'm scared. I'm, I'm scared to go. I'm, I'm scared what this means. I know hearing from friends in Minneapolis, they're, they're I mean, scared, not irrationally, but, but, but very understandably in so many of our cities. And it's scary to think that um, what's going to happen when, and we pray very soon that that these are quelled and and they calm down, you know, will the cities evacuate? Will will people go out? Will will crime run rampant? You see just what what a gift civilization is and that it's not something that comes naturally it's something that has to be uh, worked for and defended and preserved and it only takes a small handful of people and perhaps leaders who are not up to the challenge to see all of this uh, unravel very quickly and I don't mean the whole nation, but I mean a lot of really hard things. So these are scary times. And when you get that and they're and people are angry and we understand why they're in there and they're frightened. This and everything is on video and you have instant communication with everyone. This is a recipe for a very difficult time. Uh, I, I don't know what, what number I'm I'm on here. That was maybe five or I just got two other things here. Uh, a bit more intellectual. Um, it, it, just thinking more broadly about why race in this country, and, and, and thinking here about people of goodwill, thinking about people in your church of a different color. Think about people who agree on so many other things, and you sing the same songs, and you really love Jesus together. And you, you read the same Bible, and you really are together for the gospel. So why why is it so why is it so divisive? Well, one um, this is number six, I guess. Uh, we're, we're not sure what our history is as a country. Uh, I think everyone acknowledges that it's our, our history, like any nation, is is filled with. Uh, High spots and low spots, that's a, not a controversial thing to say. And there are great accomplishments, and there are great injustices. But beyond those sort of platitudes, is the history of America, uh, and I'm going to put this as you know neutrally as I can, but is the history of America basically 400 years of systemic oppression, white people uh, having all of the benefits, and black people being systematically oppressed and treated in inhuman ways. 
such that the the founding statements of this country were window dressing for uh, a larger, more nefarious project. Uh, and those are certainly good things. We're thankful about our country. To tell the story of our country is to essentially tell the story uh, first and foremost of bigotry and everyone who might be complicit in that. That's one way to tell our national story. There's another way to talk about America as a land of hope and opportunity with many blind spots, grievous ones uh, that have uh, oftentimes not lived up to our own ideals and the things written down in our founding documents. And nevertheless, uh, can say I'm proud to be an American. And there are uh, on the whole, believe the country has been an exceptional country and one that is been used for good in the world. Now, I, I know lots of people would say, well, I, you know, some people would say, I want to say both of those things are true. Well, uh, yes, we, we all understand there's good and bad in the country. That's not controversial. But the basic story that we're telling, I don't think we agree on. And it's not the point of this podcast to try to say which is which here. Uh, and, and then related to that, and this is a, the seventh big picture point in most germane to what we're going th- There's, and again, I'm talking about Christians, about like-minded people of goodwill, of good faith in the church. We don't agree on the current state of racism in America. Uh, so put it very crudely. Suppose that the experience of slavery in this country, you've got to scale zero to a hundred. hundred is absolute, horrible, racial injustice, bigotry, evil, and zero is heaven. Okay, well, we're not going to have zero on earth, but say chattel slavery in America was an experience of 90 to a hundred. And say Jim Crow was an experience of 80 to 90. Now, you're going to get almost everyone to say that some things are better than they used to be. And you're going to get almost everybody to say, yes, racism still exists in places. Those are big ideas people can agree on. But if we were to put a number on it, I know we can't. But... Do we think that the state of racism in America, the privileges accrued to whites, the the disadvantages and oppression personally or systemically against blacks, uh, if it was 90 to 100 and then 80 to 90 with Jim Crow, uh, is the number now 75 or is it 25? And... If if you're depending on how we're walking around, if we have the number seventy five in our head, then all of the you know that is a, a framework for interpreting all sorts of other events that happen, that uh, are events that are not standalone events, but are part of a broader narrative from slavery to the failure of reconstruction to Jim Crow to redlining to mass incarceration to police brutality and it fits in this this narrative story I'm not using any of those terms pejoratively likewise if somebody thinks well racism still exists but you know it's 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 going down overall and you know maybe we're at a, a 30 or a 25 or a 20 then they will see these incidences as standalone incidents and bad cops among mostly good cops and um, some bad experience tragedies and injustices but not the story writ large not mainly what's happening in america now you're saying uh kevin (laughs) Okay, you're just laying out these options, and you're not telling us what you think. And I'll just be honest. I do not know. I don't know. And uh, I know that I can't make my experience and what I've seen to be the total 
some of the American experience. I know what I hear from others. I know what I read. And uh, to be honest, I want to learn and listen and try to make sense of it. Uh, Because I think at the heart of a lot of, in the church at least, when these incidences come up, can agree on this one, thankfully. It's wrong in, 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 in justice. But the broader story of what's going on is one that, you know, we, we're not sure about. And we really, we don't agree on. And because the whole issue comes up in these moments of great uh, emotion and tragedy, it's never really feels like, okay, now's the good time to sort of, let's, let's talk history, let's uh, look at economics, let's look at studies. It just, all, all of that then seems out of place. But I think we need to have the sort of trust and love and fellowship with one another that even if we don't finally agree on, well, the number is 75 or the number is 25, that we, we do at least look together and try to assess as, as best we can. So I'll, for all of those reasons, I think this is intractably difficult. So, boy, I, I'm wrapping this up rather long-windedly. Let me end with something perhaps uh, just trying to be a little more positive, though we, we need to stare at the, the negative before we can look at the positive. Just leave you with three quick thoughts that may maybe some, some encouragement. Uh, one... We, we ought to consider, and here I know there's people overseas listening to this, but I'm thinking about Americans. Uh, we ought to consider that w- we don't ha- we don't know what is real America, and I say that because uh, I, I don't want to you know, gloss over major flaws and faults, and yet it is so easy, you know, just uh, over this past week. You know, you look through social media and you find stories of black protesters protecting a white police officer because they're protesting in good faith and they're protesting to to work for change and to be heard and not to seek violence. You hear stories of, you know, a, a white sheriff who gets down and marches with the protesters and says, I love you, I'm listening to you, I want to change. Uh, what happened in Minneapolis is wrong. So is that America? Is that the state of race relations? Uh, again, not saying that the, the bad stories aren't true, but, but let's not go to the other side and say, well, none of the good stories are true either. Or they don't tell us anything about uh, what it's like in America. It's so easy to take the worst of the stories and the worst injustices and the worst incidents and the worst sorts of people and and think well that's what it's like and when they're you know we're not going to hear about the thousands of people from all over Minneapolis who got up the next morning um, from churches and probably from synagogues and just from all walks of life and start cleaning up the streets uh, we're not we're not going to know their names. So what is the real America? We don't have to settle that it's just the worst pictures and the worst stories that we see. Uh, The other thing is to just come back to let's not miss what we really do agree on. So I went through a bunch of things we may not agree on. We may not, you know, tell the history of America in the same way. We may not assess the current state of racism in America in the same way. But don't miss that I mean, it is something, and it is a change from 50, 60 years ago. Virtually everyone wants, uh, I mean, we want an end to police brutality. We want an end to uh, racism. We we want people to be valued, to uh, be treated the same way. We don't want people to be uh, fearful for their lives. We don't want there to be... Uh, unnecessarily harsh interactions with police officers. We don't want stores to be looted and destroyed. We don't want uh, police officers to be spat upon. Now, you can find you know, people in extremes in either direction who say, oh, I do want those things, and that's part of the revolution. But look, that's, that's not where most everyone is. 
So let's not miss what we do really agree on. And if coming out of this can be a real heartfelt effort to say, we, we, we don't want this to happen again. And, we, and you know, there's, there's 30, 330 human beings in this country, so bad things will happen again. But if we can do, uh, if there's ideas out there, if there are ways to, to make it, I, I think there's a great amount of will to see these things. Uh, there's all sorts of things we don't agree on, and we're so easily polarized and, and politicized. But there are a, a great number of the most important things that if we could get the my sideism out of it, we really do want to see happen. And then finally, just for Christians, what do, what do we do? And I know this is going to sound, oh, Kevin, you're being a, a, a pietist here, but I was seeing Karen Ellis tweet this today, and I appreciate it. She's saying, don't, don't let people tell you that prayer isn't doing something. Uh, there may be things to do after you pray, but but pray. And we know as, as Christians that to pray is not, prayer is the work Prayer is the wrestling against uh, not just flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. Prayer is not just you know, thoughts. It's not mindfulness. It is talking to the God of the universe who cares about us and cares about his creation and cares about those made in his image and, yes, cares about the United States of America. And so we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name, believing that God will listen, and we pray for humility. Uh, before we think of all the other sins that someone else has to repent of and all the ways that they're benighted in their thinking, what if we would start? We would pray for a week. I've found that this is one prayer the Lord always answers in my life. Lord, uh, show me my sin. What, what have I missed? It, it expose my, the dark places of my heart. Would you give me humility toward others? And then what what, what can I do? Knowing that we have different vocations, we have different spots in life, and, you know, someone who's on doing legislation on Capitol Hill has a different calling than someone who's busy at home as a mom, but what might I be able to do? And then, boy, this is going to sound, last thing, I promise, this is going to sound absolutely like I'm just doing a Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. But look, don't, don't let the world steal that from the church. So uh, I, I know sometimes, you know, perhaps fairly, Christians can get criticized for only thinking in a personal dimension. So I'm not suggesting that we just go out and hold hands with neighbors from six feet away and uh, all problems go away. I get it. There's culture, there's legislate, there's all sorts of things. But look, if we as Christians get to the point where we're embarrassed to say love is what we need to do, then we, we've missed what it means to be a Christian. Love God and love your neighbor. And we know as Christians that, that we know the definition of love. And it's not unconditional affirmation. It's not, you know, just warm, squishy feelings. Love means you're patient and you're kind. You do not envy others. You don't want to take away blessings they have. You don't boast like the blessings that you have are because you deserve them. You're not arrogant. You're not rude toward other people. You don't insist on your own way. You, you, you want to listen. You want to learn. You want to understand. You, you come with a posture of humility you're not irritable. You're not resentful. You don't rejoice at wrongdoing. You're not looking for the other side to screw up because then it makes your side look better. And you want to rejoice with wrongdoing because, ha-ha, shame on you. That's a point for our side. And you rejoice with the truth. Wherever, whoever the truth. wherever it comes from, whoever says it, you want the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And we know love because the Lord Jesus loved us first. He gave his life as a propitiation.
propitiation, a wrath-atoning sacrifice when we deserved the Father's just anger against us, when we deserved to be treated as criminals, when we had nothing to our account that we should be given a second chance or a millionth chance because of his great love with which he loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and he gave up his life for us. And so we who have been loved surely ought to love one another. God bless. Stay safe. Pray. Read your Bibles, and we hope to be with you again next week.